guys. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're in a, actually we've been in this series in James and we're taking a four-week break from that and going to be just moving through a series called Recalculating. And uh, today is, uh, the topic is Recalculating Sexuality. Um, and we're going to start back in, in Genesis here. But I remember when we first uh, moved here from uh, Montana, and uh, I was in, uh, we were in an interview, and I came up somewhere in that interview weekend. My wife and I were here. And, and this is folklore, so I'm not sure how much is uh, accurate or not, but uh, this is how I, th- I remember it, so I won't, uh, I won't uh, die for any of this. But I remember at some point somebody saying, are you going to be a Buckeye flan- fan? And I think it was Laurel Mast, um, who very seriously was asking that as an elder, wondering, I don't know what that was going to be uh, something that would block me from coming or not, but I, I said, Buckeyes? What do you mean Buckeyes? And uh, uh, don't ask Laurel, what do you mean Buckeyes? Because uh, he'll tell you. And uh, so I proceeded to get a lecture about Buckeye football. And uh, when I found out how, you know, they win all the time, I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I'm in. Um, uh, you know, other things, yeah, they said, well, not, maybe not, you don't have to worry about the Browns necessarily, but Buckeyes for sure. And um, so I'm like, I'm in, and I remember getting a Buckeye shirt, and I think it was, I don't know, within that year or a year later, and, and nobody, you know, I didn't get like a primer on how to be a Buckeye fan. And I remember having a shirt on, and we were out on vacation somewhere sometime later in Colorado within a year or two. And we're out, just out in the mountains, right? And all of a sudden, this guy goes, O-H! I'm like, yeah, O-H! And he goes, O-H! And I'm like, heard you the first time, O-H! He does it again, O-H! Kind of like, come on! And I'm like, you know, this is getting awkward. I, I know, it's Ohio, that's great. Nobody told me you say... Yeah, exactly. Actually, my mom and dad just moved here from Arkansas. So mom and dad, um, yeah. Shout out to them in the back. Now you know, if somebody says OH, say I-O, because nobody told me that. So somebody else came up, and uh, he said, um, Jeremy Norwood was saying, oh, this happened with my wife, because Jeremy's a big Penn State fan. And so Penn State fans always say, we are, yeah, right. I, I didn't even know why I said this out loud. I'm so sorry. I just ruined it for all of us. But uh, anyway, Sheila, somebody, she was, uh, uh, Sheila was somewhere out in public and she had a Penn State shirt on and somebody said, we are. And she's like, we're what? <laughs> and they kept going, we are. And she's like, we're what? So uh, she found out you're supposed to say eh, that word over there. So, uh, (laughs) I see you back there, man. I feel your love. It's funny, though, what we identify with and and how that can have impact on our lives. And when you think about there's fun things we identify with that doesn't have much hold on our lives. But the deeper things go, the more serious they become, the, the more... I would say significant they are in terms of truth or in terms of reality, obviously, the more impact they have. So there's stuff that we're, you know, we identify with and like, yeah, that's pretty light. You can go deeper than that and you start talking about, well, I, I, you know, I'm a student, I'm in high school or I'm in college or 
or whatever. I'm, I'm single, I'm married, I'm a mom, I'm a dad. American, grandma, grandpa, husband, wife. All, all those things we have as identities, right? How about in terms of faith? I, I, I've, you know, some of us may be here going, I'm not a Christian. I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure this out, so I'm undecided or maybe agnostic, maybe atheist. A lot of us in this room would say, I, I follow Christ. I'm a Christian. Our identity as we start talking about deeper and deeper things, becomes more and more attached to that which we identify with and actually requires us to act upon it. As much as we should be able to say, I owe, at the end of that, because we're fans, when you become a Christian, there are things that come with identifying with Christ. And the more important, the more integral they are, it comes with more power and influence over our lives, able to set the course of our life. And we've been going through this series here last week and the next three weeks, and, and it's a series called Recalculating, and it's off the premise that uh, we have the, you know, the phones, our phones have a GPS, right, and, and our cars have a GPS, and we can... Uh, go through the whole nation, right, uh, all according to four satellites, and it's always keeping us in a line with those and telling us where we are and in relation to the destination that we've set. And, and the Christian life is very similar. There's, there are signals. God's word is a signal, God's voice of telling us, hey, I want you to go this direction, and we've said yes. And the problem is in life, we have all these other signals that are out there in orbit around us saying, no, 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 this is the, the de destination. You need to take a, a turn here and go down this road. And this sermon series is ta tackling four subjects that we are constantly being challenged on and constantly being enticed to go, no, no, don't go that direction, go this direction. And so hopefully over these four weeks, we're able to recalculate again and make sure that we're, we're going with the direction on the road that God would have us go. And so we're... we're Going out of the Bible, which is always the best way to go, and Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start, and it's, it's where we started last week, and it has a lot of bearing on this week. Verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to keep coming back to this signal and this reality that every person is sacred, has dignity in the eyes of God. Because we are made in his image. And what, what defines image? It's, it's our capacity that we have mentally and morally and emotionally and spiritually. And, and we talked even a bit last week about how God guards life in Exodus 20 and, and with the Ten Commandments. And in Matthew chapter 22, there's, there's this boundary around life that God creates because we are so 
special, so unique, so made in his image. And so anything that starts to hurt that image is something that God would say, wait a minute, that, that's a wrong path. It's a wrong direction. Now as we talk about this idea of sexuality, second chapter, we find that God begins to weigh in on this and give us a picture of what he had in mind. And we see in Genesis chapter 2, you see the verses up on the screen. It says this, the Lord said, it is not good for the man, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then scroll down a couple more verses and it picks up this theme. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of her ribs and clothed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What's found at the beginning when we start to talk about this whole idea of sexuality is that God created two different bodies. And there is embedded by God a distinct physiological identity for men and for women. And it's self-evident to everyone on the planet that men and women are physically distinct from each other. Our physical sex organs are different from each other. It's evidence through science that our chemical makeup with hormones such as testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, are different from each other. Even our muscular structure is different. And, and, and God created this and he called this good. And the signals that we can get from society say, ah, no, physiology doesn't matter. It's what you feel that matters. But the signal from the Bible tells us that God's physical design does matter. And it has incredible bearing on our identity. What it means to be a man is deeply connected to his body. What it means to be a woman is deeply connected to her body. And to conclude anything different would be to choose a different conclusion that denies the created design of God. And it's to declare that it wasn't good, it is wrong. So when it comes to sexuality, physiology matters. It does. That's the signal God is sending out, and he's saying it is good. My design is good and right. Not only that, as you read through these verses, physiology is a piece that comes, but also he begins to talk about this idea of marriage, and, and there's a, several things that happen within that. First, you see that God created marriage. Second, that he defines what marriage is, and, and then he talks about this purpose. And, and he, God creates this thing. It's God's idea of man and woman coming together. First than that, that's the first signal. Second signal, he defines it between a man and a woman a union between a man and a woman. And then he goes on, he says, and this is the purpose. In verse 24, they shall become 
one flesh. How do you become one? Well, you become one, we're created in his image, or you can become one spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. That's God's vision. A man and a woman becoming one in the deepest and, and most intimate way possible, spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally. In the Bible, the idea of oneness is never said in this context that a man and a man shall join together or a woman and a woman. In addition, biologically or physiologically, it is self-evident as you look at that a man cannot become one with a man nor a woman with a woman. A man entering a woman, a woman receiving a man, that's God's design in marriage for physical intimacy and oneness. And it isn't just that Genesis says this. Twice Jesus reaffirms this idea of a man and a woman coming together to become one. Paul twice also talks about a man and a woman coming together in marriage to become one. Paul also talks about this idea that we, are, we get a greater, fuller understanding of becoming one as Christ is the head of the church and Christ is the husband and the church is the bride and Christ gave his life up for the bride, so also the husband should give his life up for his wife. There's, there's this deep, profound sacredness to marriage. And it's reaffirmed over and over again. It's elevated. And this isn't something as you go through the Bible, it's not something poorly thought through. It is designed and created this way and continually reaffirmed that this is the way it was created and the way it's supposed to be expressed. One of the signals we hear, or multiple signals, this world is sending out is that this idea of marriage is open to interpretation. And, and while you know, we can, we can interpret it however we want to, the, the signal is loud and clear biblically, though, that there is only one definition as God has put it together. But the signals we hear is there's no absolute definition. There's no boundaries to who can be married. And, and what makes it even more difficult is you have churches and whole denominations agreeing and saying, listen to those signals, follow those signals. But the problem is there's, with that is there's another strong signal. Not only this is what marriage is about and for, but you also see throughout Scripture strong boundaries. As much as we talked about how God put boundaries around life, God puts boundaries around marriage to keep it sacred and to protect us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time just to read through these passages. And this is not Scott Brooks's opinion. You're going to hear Scripture. And you're going to just see it for yourselves where these passages are. And just this is what God is saying. First passage is in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which uh, some of you may be familiar with. 
And uh, the verse, or chapter 18, it's recorded this. It says, the outcry, this is God talking, against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I am going to go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. So Sodom and Gomorrah is an evil city, very evil, and God is about to bring judgment, but he's going to give this town one more chance. So he sends two angels appearing as men as as the story unfolds who go into the town to check it out and they end up staying in the house of Lot who is a cousin to Abraham. And Abraham is a big guy in Israel's history. If you're unfamiliar with that, uh, uh, the Bible says Abraham is the founding father of the Israelite nation. So they go into Lot's house and it says in verse 5 that all the men of the city surrounded Lot's house and, they, and it says, they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Now, if you read through the story, Lot offers his daughters. You can have my daughters, but not these men. And the, and the, the town's men, the men from the town said, no, no, we want those men. And it got so intense, they were about ready to break down the door, and these angels uh, caused all the men to be blind. And in the next paragraph, the angel tells Lot, We are going to destroy this place. Get out. Get out now and don't look back. And that's what God did. Now, it's not just that story that happens there. From this point on, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as a point of reference for the worst kind of evil and rebellion. Over and over and over again. 47 times Sodom is mentioned, 20 to- 21 times in the Bible, Gomorrah is mentioned. God never let the matter drop about Sodom and Gomorrah. Even Jesus brought up Sodom and Gomorrah as a reference point for evil and how bad it can get. Exodus chapter 20, it says this. When you talk about boundaries for marriage, it says, do not commit adultery. Leviticus 18, 23 says this, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, 13 says, if a man lies with a man and as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Romans chapter one says this, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God a truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. But let, or let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, or, yeah, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ and God. Now these are the major passages about this. There's all kinds of other ones too. See, it's not just a passage it is a consistent theme. This teaching isn't something that is imposed on the word, but when you read the word and you read through this, you can't help but be led to conclude. The historical understanding Israel has had since Abraham, and then when Moses was given the law, is that anyone who defines marriage and allows that physical expression of oneness and sexual intimacy outside the bonds of marriage falls outside the realm of orthodox Christianity. There is not one place in all of Scripture, there is not one phrase in all of Scripture, one sentence, one paragraph, where adultery or homosexuality is ever endorsed or cast in a light that would be considered good. It's never reversed. And because it is so specifically mentioned, it has to be specifically reversed for us to be able to say otherwise. That is not the signal we get in this world. Do we need to recalculate? Are we on this road? And now it feels really narrow, doesn't it? When you read the word of God, now you understand, now we understand what Christ says when he says the road is narrow. It's not open for a broad interpretation. As we talk about sexuality, there's also something else that I think is, is an overarching premise in our conversations and in our behavior. In John chapter one, John is writing about Jesus and, and he says this about Jesus. He said, Jesus came, oh, let me see here, I just turned over the wrong page, sorry. He said this, the word became flesh, the word is Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it goes on, he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's two things John says, Jesus came full of grace and truth from the Father, and he came filling us with grace and truth. When you look at Jesus' life, his life was always this constant tension between grace and truth. Grace, what, what did grace look like? Well, 
You start reading through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus hung out in homes where the religious people were like, what are you doing there? Why are you identifying with them? Why are you sharing bread and breaking a meal? You know, why are you... Jesus didn't explain it. He was okay with people misunderstanding his motives because they thought, oh, you're sliding from truth, and Jesus is like, no, they need grace. They need grace. How many times did people say, what are you doing with them? Why are you? Grace. And yet, on the other hand, you read through the Gospels and over and over again, in almost every situation, Jesus is speaking truth. Most of the time when he speaks truth with anger, it's at the religious people, the people who should know better, the people who say, oh, you know, I go to church. He's ticked off at them because of their self-righteousness and they're blind to the truth of who he is and God's love. That's most of the time when he got angry. The other times when he spoke truth, it it was with compassion it was with grace, and it was this. And even when you get angry, maybe that is, that is a form of grace. Gracefully telling them, you guys are messed up. But when he came to people who didn't know better or weren't a part of the family God, as it were, he still spoke truth. He still spoke into their lives. He didn't hold back. And you see the responses throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where people, you know, were angry. Sometimes people were utterly crushed. People were broken. People were sad. People were confused. Grace and truth. What Christ calls us to do is to live out grace and truth. Grace says, go and love people. Love them well. Give people grace. Get into relationship with people who aren't following his signals and let them know how much you love them. Grace pushes us into relationships where other people might misunderstand us and even they might misunderstand us. And Grace says, that's okay. (laughs) I don't have to explain it all. I'm here to give grace and give lots of it. And that's hard because in the church, when you see whole denominations shifting away from this, everything's a battle. Everything's a fight. And in this culture that is starting to really put pressure and persecution on churches who who hold to this and Christians who hold to this, you feel like everything's, you got your fists up. And what Christ is saying is, "Get get your hands down. Get your fists down. Give grace. Give grace. And yet, truth, Christ calls us the truth. And truth says, 
can't endorse this. I can't endorse this. I don't, I can't say the words that you want me to hear or you want to hear. And sometimes even our presence at events or when we're invited to things might communicate endorsement and and if any Christian who has an easy answer to these things is someone who is not appreciating the tension of this. These are not easy answers. They're not. Because if we go in error on one side or another, we could hurt people. We can either side of this. We have to fight for that tension and we have to do this with prayer and we have to do this with humility. We can't lose truth and we can't lose grace and how those two work. I mean, we're talking in the office and it's complex. It's so complex. These aren't easy things. Grace what does grace look like? Well, grace looks like, you, you know, we read these passages here that have these whole lists of sin, and grace says, it's, it's a sin. It's a sin in the list of all kinds of other sins. How about we talk about all the other sins too? There's a boatload of them in here, and a lot of us are doing those ones. Grace says, it's a sin, just like all of the other sins are. Christ calls them evil, brings us to the foot of the cross where we all are saying we've sinned. Truth says it's a sin. It's not an issue. It's a sin. I would imagine in this room some of us are strong on grace weak on truth and some of us are strong on truth and weak on grace it's kind of how it always goes we have different strengths and weaknesses and what is God saying to you right now how do you need to recalculate who you're in relationship with and how you're moving towards them are you in relationships with people and God is calling you to shut up and not say anything but just give grace. I was talking to somebody actually this past week who just felt like God said, don't say a word. You need to give grace. And he, he felt like that for seven years and he said, and I felt a relief. Like God said, okay, it's now time to bring truth. Seven years. God does those kind of things to us. I don't know what the Lord is telling you on this road and how you need to calculate his signals of grace and truth. This message has not been an easy one for me to do because I knew this message was going to hurt someone. There are several people that I know who attend our church that have same-sex attraction. There's couples in our church who have gone through adultery, 
going through it, trying to get on the other side of it. We've seen people healed. God healing, their marriage is restored, but we've had transsexuals come through this door. A growing number of us have family and friends who have had one of these things hit them, their family. At Moody, I had friends that were homosexuals. Outside of Moody, I had friends, guys that were in ministry, same-sex attraction, trying to figure out what it looks like to live celibate. And is something, I watched them walk through that and just, they can't ever talk about it. Not at church, which is so tragic. The one place you should be able to talk about it and to walk with people, and they can't. I want the legacy of our church to be a place just like it was in 1970. Where someone has a struggle, we come alongside. If someone's trying to figure it out, we walk alongside and we give grace and we share the truth. I had somebody come up to me afterwards who's walked through uh, adultery and they said, I want you to know the reason I'm at this church is because of the way you guys treated me. After what I did, you guys didn't get rid of me. You didn't reject me. You loved me. You don't treat me any different than what I was before. That's Christ, right? That's Christ. I mean, they have tears in their eyes as they're just talking about it. Belonging, being loved. Some of you are living in secret, and that's so difficult. And I know it has to be almost impossible for you to see any path towards sharing what you struggle with. And my prayer is you're able to do that here in the days ahead, to find somebody that you, you know is safe and just to say, hey, this is where I am and this is, I, I just don't know, I'm stuck or I'm confused or I, I need help or, you know, help. But I want to just say to, to any, anyone who has gone or is going through same-sex attraction, adultery, um, on behalf of Christ and on behalf of Freshwater, we're glad you're here. We are. We're glad you're here. God brought you here for such a time as this. And we're very glad. Let's pray.